Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. This is my uh, reminder to not go too long, okay? So if I go too long, just raise your hand and say, I'm ready to be done. I'm, I'm hungry for some food here. Hey, welcome. Um, welcome to Life Source Church. Hey, if, you, if anybody's listening online, I just want to say welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you might not know it, uh, but we are in the midst of a, sum, a sermon series called The Church in Motion, and we're going through it for the summer. And uh, what we're trying to do is we are trying to ask what would it look like uh, as a community as well as individuals to be on mission with Jesus, making disciples of the nations here in, our, in the greater Worcester area as well as the rest of the world. What would it look like to be on mission with Jesus as a community and as individuals? And then what would it look like to actually be not just doing it but gaining momentum and continuing to gain inertia in that cause? So to do that, we've been looking at the case, a case, like case studies, if you will, through the book of Acts. The first, the early Christian movement as recorded from the book of Acts to see how we might be like them, gaining, movement, gaining momentum in that movement. And so last week, we've learned lots of different things, but last week we particularly learned uh, that God still saves hard cases. By hard cases, I mean somebody who's antagonistic to Christianity, maybe Jesus Christ, maybe Christians, or somebody that's totally disinterested or seems to be completely disinterested in Christianity, Christians, or anything to do with religion. God saves hard cases just like he saves you and me. And so because of that, we realize that the implications of that is that we need to not write off hard cases. In fact, we should pray for them. We should show them the love of Christ. We should share the love of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, just like we would someone who we know uh, or we seem to think is interested in Christianity or what it means to be a Christian. The same way we should think about the hard cases and we should pursue them. And so we did what, to do that, we looked at a case study. We looked at the case study of all the case studies, the life of Saul who later became Paul. We looked at his conversion. And we're going to do that again today, but we're going to look at it from a different angle. We're going to go to Acts chapter 9. We're going to go there. So if you would, you can turn there now. And if you're, in, uh, if you're going to go in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1264. And to do that, I want to set the stage because we're going to look at a different angle at, at the conversion of Paul. And particularly what we're going to do is we're going to look at that um, and we're going to see how he responds uh, in that time as an opportunity for us to think, how we should be responding uh, to the Lord as he interacts with us. So to set the stage, Acts 9. In between uh, Acts uh, 7 and Acts 9, we have uh, our last interaction with Saul. At the end of chapter 7, in the beginning of chapter 8, we actually for the first time are introduced to Saul. And our first introduction to Saul is that Saul is consenting to the murder of Stephen. And this was a big deal because at that time, the Jews murdered Stephen, and he actually, uh, they, the Jews did not, under Roman occupation, have the authority to, to cast judgment and to and essentially uh, execute somebody, which is what happened to Stephen. And so Saul, Saul, standing there, stood as a representation of the authority, of the power of the Sanhedrin, of the Jewish authority in Jerusalem. He was there representing them, and as a result, he was saying, it's on the, the authority of the, of the Jewish people that we are doing this. And so it was, it was essentially in a uh, sanctioned execution. 
And then the next part of chapter 8, the first part of it, we see Saul, and he is ran- he's on a rampage now. We get a full-blown picture. He is gaining momentum. He's got the resources. He's got the ability to annihilate Christianity. Then this new movement, this movement of this false messiah, as he would have thought of it. And so a great persecution goes across Jerusalem, spearheaded by Saul. And what happens is the Christians in Jerusalem have to flee Jerusalem. And so they spread out through the greater region of Samaria and into Judea. And Acts chapter 8 is the record of the first people outside of Jerusalem responding positively to the gospel message. We have Christians starting in Samaria. And then we have Christians uh, becoming, uh, or people becoming Christians in Judea. And you know what? It's funny is it records very clearly the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. You know who were the people that were spreading the gospel message in Samaria and Judea? People like you and me. People like you and me, who regular people, regular jobs, doing regular things, having to leave, be uprooted from our houses, uprooted from our communities because we're being persecuted, being sent someplace else. And while they're trying to establish a life in a new place, what do they start doing? Hey, did you know that God's Messiah has come? He's risen from the dead. His name is Jesus Christ. You can have salvation if you believe in him. And people respond to that message. But later on, this is what happens. The news gets back to Jerusalem, and this is what's wild. The apostles hear about it, and they go to Samaria and Judea, and great revival happens. The Spirit comes, and it's amazing. But you know what else happens? The message of the Samarians, the Judeans turning to Christ doesn't just make it to the apostles. It clearly makes it to the, all of Jerusalem, and the Sanhedrin hears about it. And you know that guy, Saul, who was persecuting Christians in Jerusalem? Guess what? He heard about it too, and that's where we pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. Notice what it says. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. That's like way north Judea. That's about, it's almost like it's like at the top of the region of, of, uh, of Israel at that time. And so Saul wants to get up to that top point so maybe he can stop the movement and then wake his way back down and start uh, assembly, uh, just capturing all the Christians he can and bringing them back to Jerusalem to stop the movement. And so he asked for, synagogues, uh, for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that, he, that if he found any who were of the way, that's Christianity, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now I want you to notice that we're breathing, breathing threats. Literally that means inhaling. Threats and murders, inhaling. Figuratively speaking, that means animated. I mean, it means that Saul's life purpose, his life mission in that moment is to destroy Christianity. He is, he is, um, he is just completely consumed with the idea that he is going to stomp out for God this movement of a false messiah. This Jesus is nothing more than a Galilean. He's nobody. He's nothing. And I'm going to wipe him out. I'm going to wipe out anybody who believes in him. He is motivated. And so because of that, he is on a mission to stop the movement before it spreads outside of Israel. He is, he's going to make sure that no other Jews, especially throughout the rest of the known world, might turn to this false Messiah. And, and essentially, he thinks that he's doing this for God. So he's on his way. He's on his way to uh, Damascus. Notice what it says in verse 3. It says, as he journeyed... He came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now, Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. 
Saul studied under that time under one of the Pharisees, one of the uh, rabbis who would have been one of the most well-known rabbis of the day, Gamaliel. He was an incredible student of the Word of God. He was an incredible student of the Old Testament in particular. And so because of that, he would have known when light comes from heaven and shines around me, I am gonna, he's going to remember that, oh, these are the figures, that, this is just like the figures from the Old Testament who had a divine appointment with God himself or a messenger from God. And so he drops to his knees. Could you imagine, could you imagine the fear, the anticipation Maybe the excitement, but a fearful excitement. God, God is here. God, God's going to speak to me. Imagine if, I'm wondering, what's he going to say? Notice what it says. And he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Imagine, you imagine his response in that moment inside of his heart. All the fears that he ever could have had, just boom, right in that moment. Persecuting, persecuting who? No, no, I have been on a movement. I have been serving God with all my heart. I have been destroying this movement, this false Messiah. I am, I am serving God with my life. My whole life has been devoted to serving God. Maybe thoughts of, maybe I'm not meeting with God. Maybe this isn't. This isn't who I think it is. Who is this? You, I wonder, maybe if there wasn't a small voice in the back of his head that kind of clicked, could it be? Is it possible? No, no, it can't be true. The, he can't be, he can't be. No, the, he, he, he isn't. They, they, weren't, they weren't right, they aren't right, no. Is he really the Messiah? No, this has to be somebody else. Who is this? Verse 5. And he said, who, who, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said to him, I am Jesus. No! 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 I can't imagine. Can you imagine what he's thinking at that moment? Whom, not only is it Jesus, whom you are persecuting. No, I'm, I'm, I, I, I didn't know. I had no idea. Have you ever had those moments? Those moments in life where the, where the circumstances of life bring an incredible moment of clarity, not in a positive sense, in a negative sense, where you realize that everything that you have been motivated in life to pursue, everything that you've been sacrificing for, everything that you've given your heart and life over to was all worthless. You want to know those moments where you just get the feet taken right out from underneath you and you just drop to your knees? I wonder if you've ever had a moment like that and I wonder what you did. It happened for me. It was while I was a sophomore in college. I had given my life over to what I thought was something of the American dream. You know, I had a girl at the time that I loved and I thought I was going to marry. So because of that, I thought, you know what? This is what life is all about. I'm going to give my life over to it. I'm going to marry this girl. I'm going to get a good job so I can get the right house, so I can have 
the family that I've always wanted. Uh, we can have a family together, be a nice American family with, with all of the things we need to take care of ourselves, and I can take care of my family, and all that would be good. And so because of that, I was in college at the time, and I was giving my life over to this idea that I am going to do so well in college so that I can make sure, because the next thing I need is a degree, so that if I have the degree, I can get the job, so that if I have the job, I can get the house, so if I can get the house, all of those things. And so I was sacrificing, pursuing that, and then it was within a matter of about 36 hours that the feet were taken right out from underneath me. My father started acting strange. His personality started to change. At the time, I was studying physiology, and so as a result, I was starting to get an idea about central nervous system pathophysiology. And I, and I started to recognize, started to realize that there is something in my dad's central nervous system that is not right. Something's wrong. And so between me and my uncle and my mother, we ended up asking my father if he would go to see the doctor. And with, uh, with the next day, we, we took him to the doctor, an emergency appointment. The doctor ordered a CAT scan. The next day, for the next morning, I went to college that day. I got a call from my mom. My sister was in class with me at the time. She said, you guys got to get together. We have to go as a family and go see the doctor. That was about six hours later. Before the doctor, the doctor let us know that you're, that you're I'm sorry, Mark, you have uh, a brain tumor. Uh, we need to get you immediately to the emergency room to get you admitted into the emergency room um, so that you can be admitted and start, the process can start. So he went to the emergency room. The next day, we see him. He is being rushed to the ICU at that point because of the impact that the tumor is having on his brain. At the moment that he's being rushed to ICU, that's the first time I meet our neurosurgeon with my mother. My mother and I sit down with him. He opens up the CAT scan. He starts showing us the image. And while showing us the image, matter-of-factly, he says, yeah, you know, nine times out of ten, uh, this location of the tumor, uh, this size of the tumor, this shape of the tumor, um, nine people out of ten who have these same uh, symptoms, this same scenario, they have an inoperable form of a malignant tumor, and that tumor will eventually kill your father. You ha your father has, at worst, six months to live, at best, two years because of his relative age of health. He was 45 years old. I'm very sorry to give you this information. Nobody wants to meet with a neurosurgeon. We're going to do a biopsy tomorrow, and in the next two weeks, we'll confirm whether or not this is. But I am quite confident, based on the statistics, this is what your father has. So sorry to give you this news. Have a nice day. Gets up, walks away. I mean, you, I don't know if you've ever been there, but to give your life over to something, and then to find out that you had completely been wrong. That was the first moment in my life where I realized I missed it. It was about six months later that I gave my life to God. Um, but that was the first time that I started to actually realize maybe, maybe I don't got it figured out. Maybe I don't have it all figured out. I wonder what your response has been. And I got to say before we go any further, because I always forget to do this, it actually turns out that he was the one in ten. That he actually had a treatable form of central nervous system cancer. He started chemotherapy and radiation, and within six months, the tumor was gone. It's nine years now since that time that my father has been cancer-free. Now, he is not the same man he was before. He has, he's dealing with the symptoms, the results of the impact of having chemo and radiation therapy on, done on your, on your brain. Um, so, so praise the Lord, he's alive. Thank God. You're going to meet him actually next week. He's coming here on Wednesday, and he's going to be with us for a week, so he'll be here next weekend, which is awesome, and I'm very excited about that. But just so you know, that's what happened. I always forget to do that, and then people think my dad is dead, and he's not. Um, praise the Lord. So, all right. So going back to our story. So 
If you ever had that response, if you ever had that moment, I wonder what you did. See, Paul is actually in a, a scenario similar to that. See, what's interesting to know about those scenarios is I believe that God is quite involved in those scenarios. See, I think that what's very clear about what's happening to Paul is that Paul is being resisted by God. See, you got to remember, Paul had the personality. Paul had the abilities. Paul had the resources. If there was ever anybody that had the resources at this early of the Christian movement, that he actually could have stomped out Christianity in that time. I mean, he was on his way to do it. And humanly speaking, he could have. So God intervened and stopped him. But God just didn't intervene to stop him. That was a moment of grace. And that's true for us when a moment like that happens. It's a moment for us to realize, and Paul realized, I got it wrong. But not just to realize that he got it wrong, but also to realize he can make it right. He can turn to the Lord. Notice what Paul says next. So Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? That is an incredibly important question. That question is the question you and I can start with. If a moment like that ever happens, we could be there. We should ask that question. But not only does Paul start there, and not only should we, if we ever have a moment like that, start there, but we, today, can make that the practice of our lives. And so, I would actually want to say, maybe today, maybe today, someone here is actually like Saul. Now, now the light hasn't shown, but maybe the light is shown in your heart, if I, if I may say. And right now, you are realizing that you have been given your life over to something that obviously, clearly, is not the truth. You might even say you're a Christian. Some of you might be here and say, yes, I'm a Christian. However, you do not actually understand what Christianity really is. Let me tell you what Christianity is based on, founded on. This is what it is. It's that Jesus Christ came as a man, died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose from the dead, and ascended to the Father. And the resurrection is a historical fact. So let me expand upon that a little bit for you. Because the resurrection is a historical fact, Jesus, the things that Jesus said, which we have recorded as historically reliable documents in the four Gospels that are in the New Testament, his words are very accurate. And one of the things he says is that the whole Bible is God's word. And so you want to open up and want to hear from God? Open up the Bible. You'll hear from him. Guess what he says about us and about reality? He says that God is holy. God is perfect. He also says that mankind has sin. And it's in every person's life that every one of us, none of us are righteous, no, not one, that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is very clearly this, that we do something that we know we aren't supposed to do. We do it against our conscience. We do it against what we've known, what we've learned that is right or wrong. We decide to do that wrong thing. Why? Because we think it'll benefit us. And so we go and do it. And the scriptures make very clear that anybody that ever does that has sinned. Scriptures go on and say the wages of sin is death. You will die, and after death comes judgment. See, here's the common misnomer, the issue that people tend to have, is people think that there's going to be this moment when we come before God, we will come before God. There's going to be this moment when, when, when the, there's going to be this weights and scales kind of thing happen where the good's going to get added and then the bad's going to already be there and we're just hoping that the good's enough to get the bad overcome, right? Problem is, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says 
that your life is going to be opened up like a book. And every deed you've ever done is going to be right there. The good deeds, God will, God will say, good job, good job, good job, good job, good job. And then there's that black one right there. That's going to be read out loud. The problem is one of those, just one, is enough before a holy, righteous God to send you to hell. And it's going to happen. That's your position apart from God, apart from anything. But God, this is what the scriptures say, God so loved the world, loved you, that he sent Jesus Christ to die in your place. To take the penalty that you deserve for your sin. He took it because he doesn't want you to have to take it. And so he took the eternal wrath of a holy, righteous God in your place. And God says, hey, here is an opportunity for you to do something. What do I do now that I know that? Well, God says, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 was penned by actually Paul, believe it or not, and it says this. It says, for by grace you've been, or you've been saved through faith. Grace means it's, not, it's nothing you've done. It's a gift. It's something God has done out of his good grace. It's not because you're good or even because you're bad. It's because God chose. You've been saved through faith. That means saved from hell, saved from the penalty of that, through, and this is what you do, through faith, simple trust. And it goes on, it says, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, a gift, not of works, meaning you didn't earn it, I didn't earn it, lest anyone should boast. So you might be asking, Jeff, okay, that's the first time I've really understood that. What do I do? Well, it's pretty simple. It's, it's trusting. It's trusting that what Jesus Christ did was more than enough to save you, that his, his death on the cross was, was a sufficient payment, that it was literally all of the penalty you deserve for every sin that you ever committed or ever will commit. And so you say, God, I know I'm a sinner. Maybe in your heart you do that. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know you're holy, and I know if I stand before you and the book's open, these things are going to be coming before me, and I have no hope other than I know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took all of my sin, the penalty for all my sin away, and I'm trusting him and him alone. God, Jesus, would you be my savior now? And if you do that, one thing, the scriptures make very clear that God comes into your life in the person of the Holy Spirit, and you become his child. You become a Christian. That's what a Christian is, someone who's trusted Christ as their savior. And he begins to work from the inside out and change you. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of us think that what Paul did in that moment was, what do I do to become a Christian? But we're going to see that that actually isn't what Paul is doing in that moment. It's, it's much bigger than that. And I think that a lot of us as Christians, we get kind of stuck in this moment that says, oh, I've been saved. I'm good. I'm not going to hell. Things are good. Me and Jesus, were tight. Um, but Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 goes on to verse 10. And notice what it says in verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship. That means, that word workmanship, it's like a masterpiece. You ever thought about yourself as a work of art? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Here's why, for good works. And why, and how, and when, which God prepared beforehand. Earlier in Ephesians 1, it talks about how he knew before the foundations of the earth you would be his child. God prepared beforehand that we should 
walk in them, that means live them. So, so here's, what, here's what this whole point is. Christianity, you become a Christian not just to get out of uh, hell free, if you will. It's so that you could be saved and made a part of what God is doing in this world right now so that you could be a part of what he's doing forever. And here's what the scriptures go on and say. It says, okay, so when you become a Christian, you actually become a part of God's big picture, God's big picture movement that he's doing um, in the world. He is making disciples. He's saving people, yes, but he's making people that follow him and do the Father's will. And this is the Father's will, that people would be rescued from hell, made his children, that they would be made into the image, returned, restored to the image of Jesus Christ so that they could glorify God in heaven for all eternity. That's what you get to be a part of. Isn't that amazing? Now, here's the thing. Paul, in this moment, gets to this spot and he goes, what do you want me to do? And he realizes he'd been on a mission for something completely different. His whole life had been encompassed in something completely wrong, and so he is ready. God, what am I supposed to do? My whole life has been wrong. What should my life be about? And I think that's where you and I need to start. If you've never gotten past, what do I do, become a Christian? Here's the thing. God's got a big picture mission for you. Big picture mission, you gotta ask him, what do you want to do with my life? Big picture mission is it's what God wants to do with all people and he wants to use all people to make disciples of the nations and to glorify himself forever. And you get to be a part of that. Notice we've gone to Ephesians 4 many times, many times, but we're going to do it again just because it's so important. Paul later in Ephesians goes on and says, okay, now that you've been saved, now that you know what, here's what you've got to do with your life to walk according to the works that God prepared before. And he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called to one body and one spirit for the work of the ministry so that speaking the truth in love we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. See, when you became a Christian, not only just you, did, you, did God just come into your life, but what the scriptures say is that you actually became a part of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And so what that means is somehow, big picture, your life is a part of what God is doing in local churches like Life Source Church. And so you might say, okay, I have big picture, I know I'm supposed to make disciples, but how do I as an individual do that? Well, that's where you need to start asking God, what do you want to do specifically with my life? And I hope up to this point, we've given you some answers in that, that, that Walt has done a great job of saying, okay, like for example, what has God given you? What do you have for abilities? What might be a supernatural or spiritual gift, if you will, that you have? What, what might be resources that you have? What are you passionate about? What really gets your clock turned? What do you get excited about? What do you love to do? Could it be that God has turned you into a masterpiece, if you will. God wants to work in you in only a way that you, very special person that you are, can work out this great picture, big picture mission of making disciples of the nation. And so you need to ask God to start hitting you an understanding of that. God, what do you want me to do specifically? And may I say, from Ephesians 4, it makes it very clear that somehow, some way, what it is that you're doing, who you are and what you're supposed to be doing, somehow it's connected. It needs to be connected. It needs to be a committed connection, if you will, to what God does through churches like Life Source Church. And then I think, if you look at Paul's life, what's going to be very clear is that he goes on, and you get the rest of Acts. And much of the epistles, very clearly, he goes on continuing to ask God this question. 
in specific areas of your life. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe there's a specific area of your life right now that's just kind of coming up that you know, I haven't asked God what he wants me to do in this area of my life. I have no idea. So maybe you need to ask him. Maybe there's a specific decision that you have not invited God to give you direction about. So you need to ask a specific area. God, what do you want me to do with this? We're going to take a look real quick at Paul's, at Jesus' reaction to Paul's question, and then we're going to go on from there, and we're going to build on this a little bit. Notice verse 6. So fear, trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Then, and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no, no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him into, by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him, so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That statement right there was said to Ananias, but Paul very clearly got that information from the Lord later on. And so that's why Acts, so we're going to see, if you were to read, we're going to read through the rest of Acts, we're going to go through the rest of Acts, you get very clearly the, ex, the, um, the explanation, the sharing of how Paul went on mission for the Lord for that, to uh, be a vessel to bear Jesus' name before Gentiles, before kings, before the children of Israel. And so, let me say real quick, just like Paul, he started with asking that question, Lord, what do you want me to do? You and I need to start with that. And we need to make it the practices of our life to continue to ask that question. But I do want to leave you with one warning before I finish today. And that is this. Notice what verse 16 says. For I will show him how many things he must Suffer for my name's sake. You know, it's funny. I feel like I look back at my life and I see how I was so willing to suffer for what I thought my life purpose was, to, to pursue the American dream. And I was willing to suffer and sacrifice whatever cost that was. Once I realized I was wrong, I said, God, what do you want me to do? And you know what's weird about that? Sometimes I'm not so sure I really want to suffer for what God wants me to do. Let me say it like this. You and I can have confidence. You and I can have clarity. If we will know what God wants us to do, we can have clarity as to our great purpose in life, and we can have clarity in moment-by-moment -moment decisions, and when the opportunity to make decisions come, we can have clarity, at least big picture, in some of the ways that God's wired us, and we can invite him to give us some information about that moment as we make a decision. And we need to do that because it's very possible that we could get to the end of our lives and realize we've wasted it completely, even as Christians. And the bigger picture in all of this is really what that question really illustrates. It illustrates, it's an expression of a heart that is surrendered to God. That says, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do, God, no matter what 
the cost, no matter what it takes. And that's exactly what Paul did. And that's also exactly what Ananias did. I mean, didn't you see that? Ananias just said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me to go to the house of the guy who's come here to find a person like me to bind me up and to take me away and to put me into prison and worship. If I don't denounce that I'm a follower of you, that you're the Messiah, if I don't say you're a false Messiah, I might actually die. You're telling me to go pray for him? Yes. Why? Because Ananias had already settled that whatever God is going to tell him to do, he's going to do it, no matter what it means. And so Ananias lets him know, hey, you know what this is going to mean, God. Yes, go. Okay. Okay. See, before we end here, real quick, you and I, we need to have a heart of surrender. We need to settle before we ever ask that question, God, what do you want to do? with my life? What do you want to do in this specific area of my life? What do you want me to do with this decision? You and I, we need to settle that we're going to do whatever he tells us, no matter what it means. And I'm not going to sit here and defend God, but I'm going to give you a few reasons why you should consider that surrender is always a good thing. First and foremost, you need to settle in your heart, is God good or not? If God is good, God is good. He is. The scriptures make it so clear. You need to settle. God is good. No matter what the experience might say, no matter what happens, I know God is good. And not only is God good, but God has settled my greatest need, the biggest question I've ever had in my life, the biggest issues, life and death. I know for a fact Jesus rose from the dead, and because of that, what he has said is true, that I, when I die, will be in paradise that I have a relationship with God and he is inside of me and he is more powerful than any struggle I could ever have. The worst thing that's ever going to happen to me is that I might die to follow him. And if that happens, I'm with him. And you know what's going to happen? When I die, I know something's coming. I'm going to have a resurrection body just like Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to have a perfect body coming, one free from disease, one free from sin, one free from death. And I have an incredible eternal earth coming. This earth is going to change and I'm going to be there forever and doing something, a purpose that has started here that's going to continue forever into eternity. I have the purpose I've always wanted. And if you will settle for that before the Lord, you can surrender to the Lord and you can do whatever he asks. You can have confidence. You can have clarity. If you will, you have a sense of fearlessness, almost invincibility. But you've got to settle. It's got good. Has you really taken care of your biggest issues? If you say, God, I'm going to surrender to you. I'm going to do whatever you tell me. What, it is, what is it you want me to do? No matter, I'll do it no matter what it requires of me. I want to leave you with one uh, real quick uh, passage. Revelation Chapter 7. See, this moment's coming very quickly. It's coming. Revelation 7 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood before the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. See, we, you, 
me, we are on a mission. God is making disciples of the nations, glorifying himself, and that moment is coming when everybody's going to be together, and it's going to continue on. Can you imagine? See, see, here's the deal. It's possible for you to actually miss it. It's possible, and you're not going to miss that moment, but it's possible for you to be in that moment and be like, I wasn't a part. It's possible. And so we need to ask God, what do you want to do with my life? What is the specific area maybe that he's bringing to your mind? What is this decision coming up? And if you will settle those things, I think maybe this week, coming up this week, you can have clarity. You can have confidence. When a moment of decision comes, you can ask, what does God want me to do here? And I wouldn't be surprised if you actually have some idea. Will you do it? Before you're going to ever do that, you've got to settle. I surrender to you, Lord. Whatever you're going to tell me to do, I will do it because... I know you're good, and you've settled this issue, and I'm going to go. No matter the cost, whatever it costs, I'm going to do it. Could you imagine we could be a church building momentum to that moment, where we could be storming, if you will, rolling like a freight engine into that moment together. Can you imagine what kind of a church we might look like if we all had that kind of clarity and confidence that we know who we are and we know what God is doing in our lives and we know what our part is to play and what he's doing. Could you imagine what your, what your life might look like if you had that kind of clarity and that kind of confidence? Will you surrender to the Lord? God, you're good. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And will you ask, God, what do you want me to do? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus Christ. He came on a mission to reveal you, to reveal that there's a kingdom coming and that there is hope. There is hope to be saved from the penalty of sin and death, which we were not made to experience, and you have given us the opportunity to turn to you and become your children and to become a part of what you're doing, a rescue mission and a mission to glorify yourself. And we want to be a part of that, so I pray for each of us. And I pray for this church now. I pray if there's, if there's anybody who's never given their, Lord, their lives to the Lord, they've never responded for salvation, I pray that they might recognize that they can do that now. They can call on you and ask you to save them, recognizing that, they, that you took the penalty for their sin. And if there's someone here who's never actually really said, God, what's my part in it? That they might start walking with you through that process. And God, whatever area you might have been stirring in our hearts, I pray that above all, we would say yes to you before you ever give us the answer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.